Coming up this week on Breaking Badness. Today we discuss, it's pillar time. Discussing the recently released national cybersecurity strategy. And of course, we're going to play our fun game, Gold, Guidance, and Grievances. With that, Breaking Badness is next. Welcome to Breaking Badness, episode number 153, recorded on April 3rd, 2023. I'm your co-host, Kelsey, holy shift, LaBelle. With me, co-host Tim, unspecific guidance is the pathway to Helming. And last but not least, Aaron, the Corinthian G-Clef. I can really only, you know, I'm going to display my age here, but I can really only hear the word Corinthian in the context of Corinthian leather. <laughs> yeah, I thought about that one, but I thought that was going to be just a little too creepy. <laughs> Man, Ricardo, well, Aaron. Uh, oh, please. Con Montalban. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I haven't I, watched. Is this a commercial? The, oh, sorry, sorry, Kelsey. I keep interrupting. No, please no. Continue. I'm interrupting you, and I feel culturally irrelevant. What is what is this reference here? Okay, so Ricardo Montalban, who is will be known to some listeners as the character Khan from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, the movie. Oh. Or if you're really a geek, you even saw him in the uh, episode in the original series as well. But he was uh, he was pitching cars. I forget which car company he uh, worked for. But Corinthian leather was the seating feature in yes. one of these cars. Aaron, hmm. do you remember? I don't remember what car it was, but it was also he was also the star of Fantasy Island Absolutely. way yeah, back yeah, yeah, in the yeah. day. Right. And so there's a period where he was just sort of the definition of suave. Yes. Ooh. He was the boss who was being told about the imminent arrival of the plane. Yes. <laughs> Thank this you for informing me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <This laughs> <weekend, laughs> we date ourselves. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's incredible. That's a deep cut right there. I respect that. <laughs> Guess those are kind of deep cuts, aren't they? I've been thinking I need to re-watch The Wrath of Khan because I haven't seen it since the 80s. And, uh, you know, you see in Trek world, a lot of people were pretty fond of that movie. Mm-hmm. So probably need to give it another look. I feel it's like... weird. How, oh, sorry. I was just going to say it's weird how when, you, you know, with the perspective of time now looking back on it, how close that movie was to the original series, you know, how, how few years separated them relatively compared to, you know, everything that's happened since. Yeah, this is one of those, you know, T-Rexes are closer to us than they were to, um, like, Triceratops or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Game changer. Game changer. I, this is, the, here's another, here's a pop culture jump about 10 to 15 years from where we just were with the Wrath of Khan. Um, no, I still haven't seen Mean Girls. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Unacceptable. Now you actually just can't watch it because what will we do with this bit? Once you've started watching Mean Girls and you can't stop, which is what will happen. Um, but the, um, oh my gosh, we were talking about this, our team the other day, um, Littlefoot from, um, oh my gosh, what is this movie from the 90s with the cute little dinosaurs? The Land Before Time, The Land Before Time. Hmm. Um, and just if, like a year ago, I just realized that Sarah was named after the tri Sarah tops and it just uh, blew yeah. my wa- my mind <laughs> i've got wait i've got one more random fact for you all that i heard from somebody a few weeks ago this has not been fact checked but it also blew my mind okay you know how banana flavored things taste nothing like bananas or do you yeah, agree with that actually that's this a universal I would, truth i would agree with that from the small amount of experience i have with it which is very small because i can't stand (laughs) bananas the real thing oh but uh yes the real thing i can i can (laughs) accept that proposition that movie chair (laughs) that movie trailer bananas the real thing um somebody was telling me the other day that 
the flavor profile used for candy, for banana flavored candy, is pulling from what is now an extinct type of banana that used to taste that that way. And that's what the flavor profile was created off of, which is why they taste nothing like current day nanners. Is this hmm. like because banana flavored candy started to be developed in laboratories millions of years ago? Well, it was like the twenties, nineteen twenties. They said mm-hmm. is the the timing, um, and I guess we just haven't iterated. Like it's all we have left of the extinct banana. Wow. Hmm. A different time. Don't know if that's true, <laughs> but I found that fascinating. I also <laughs> and remember appealing. hearing another thing that isn't fact checked uh, that the a significant part of the flavor profile of bubble gum was banana and as a banana oh, hater i i don't a banana think I hater find that to be the case but you know i don't know hmm. i'm not an expert in these things on this week of creating misinformation with breaking badness <laughs> mostly banana related right. facts urban or misfacts with break oh my god we should do a segment where we try to start an urban legend oh <laughs> excellent who, who says we haven't already done it that's true. Maybe one of those That's twos was the, <laughs> yeah. the beginning. Something to do with Tom Hanks, undoubtedly. No doubt. If not Tom Hanks, his brother. Yeah. Jimmy, hey. <laughs> Jimmy. We're thinking about up? you, bud. <laughs> anyway, do you guys want to talk about uh, some cybersecurity stuff? Should we Should we uh, take that <laughs> left here? You're at minute seven or whatever. Minute seven. <laughs> um, we did plan for the banana small talk. That was definitely in our show notes. Come prepared with banana small talk. I actually wish I would have put that in there. I'm going to start. Callie, um, Callie produces the podcast and, and makes this much easier on all of us. You should definitely just get us one time. You know, see far how far ahead we're looking at these show notes and um, see if you can mess with us. You have a lot of power in this situation, too. <laughs> she says, will do on the chat. <laughs> kind of like the, uh, the, the M&M's clause in the contract. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Do we have a writer for the show? <laughs> we don't tell people that because then no. we all just sound more intelligent and funny than we actually are. This is all <laughs> organic people. Um, it actually is for the most part, except for the amazing puns plus and great questions. Callie oftentimes is behind that. So cheers to Callie per usual. Um, but okay, let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about it's pillar time. So this last month here in March, the Biden-Harris administration released the National Cybersecurity Strategy. And the purpose of this strategy is to make shifts in how the U.S. allocates roles, responsibilities, and resources in cyberspace to protect our national interests. So, uh, Tim, I'm going to start with you here for some questions. And, you know, the strategy builds on work of existing policy and the work of previous administrations. So can you summarize... And bring us up to speed a little bit and tell us what that really means for our audience. Yeah, because it's it's been a little bit of a patchwork, I guess I would say. So I think maybe the highest profile part of this was the establishment of what's everybody's favorite agency to debate the pronunciation of, CISA, which is the correct pronunciation, by the way. Um, CISA was formed in 2019. And does anybody know? Here's a trivia trivia alert. What was CISA's first emergency directive? Misinformation about bananas. Oh, God, I knew you were going to get it. (laughs) No, actually, uh, it was um, mitigate DNS infrastructure tampering. So I thought it was, I was very proud that DNS got a shout out as the first directive that CISA put out there. Um, But, you know, if you step farther back in 2007, the National Protection and Programs Directorate, the NPPD, which everybody thinks about probably daily, uh, was formed. That was uh, under the umbrella of Homeland Security, which uh, CISA itself is as well. Uh, So there's been a gradual increase in focus, and these uh, efforts have been evolving around cybersecurity at the federal level for a number of years, but we've really seen things start to ramp up uh, under the current administration. Fascinating. And this the strategy itself, from what I understand, is built upon around five pillars. 
And the first is critical infrastructure, specifically defending critical, critical infrastructure. So it discusses expanding the use of minimum cybersecurity requirements in critical sectors. But what are the minimum requirements as they stand today? Yeah, well, so in, in something that might surprise a lot of people out there in the world in general, it might not surprise Breaking Badness listeners quite as much, but is that there hasn't been a lot in the way of actual hard requirements that carry the force of law. Uh, what we've seen are guidelines, lots and lots of different guidelines. So some of the items uh, that I actually could have mentioned with your last question, Kelsey, but deliberately held back, uh, one of these was the uh, NIST cybersecurity framework. And the first version of that was released in 2014. And that first version of, uh, of that cybersecurity framework was aimed at critical infrastructure operators. But remember, NIST is guidelines, not laws. So what's shifting uh, here is that by moving toward putting some legal teeth into this, the government's saying quite explicitly that the nudging and encouraging approach, which is to say making everything voluntary, hasn't worked, uh, or at least it hasn't worked well enough. Uh, I think that's pretty significant. We were discussing that a little bit before the, the show today. Um, and we've seen this administration ramping up toward that with, so for example, the earlier uh, EO, uh, executive order, that put down some hard guidelines when it comes to federal procurement of software. And uh, to be clear, that's different from putting laws in place that are mandating specific levels of compliance, but in some ways, I think it was a foreshadowing of what we're starting to see now and what we're going to likely see more of. So um, generally, the takeaway, the TLDR is moving from guidance toward law. If I may, I'd also like to add, I think one of the interesting things they put in there was talking about how cybersecurity investment couldn't be seen as a competitive advantage because it became kind of a disadvantage. Um, deliberately under-investing in cybersecurity became a competitive advantage for some companies and they wanted to make that not happen anymore. And they're explicitly calling that out that they want to make sure that companies can't deliberately under-invest in order to save money. Yeah, and what would be interesting is even if they weren't doing this, I have a hunch that that would have, that, that would have been a tactic that would die out naturally because you're, you're just going to get really bad <laughs> things are going to happen to you. But still, I, I would agree that I think that's a valuable thing to have stated explicitly. Hmm. That is interesting. And I'd also like to say that um, I really can imagine a commercial for a law firm called Legal Teeth that gets like a five second spot. <laughs> that's like your local um, injury lawyer. I don't know. I just I, Legal <laughs> Teeth is just such a funny two words to put together in my mind, but, but I liked it, Tim. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like that too. Well, you know, my son wants to someday go to law school and then start a firm that he's going to call the lawsuit company. <laughs> I mean, nothing like being real straightforward about what you do, right? That's true. Finally, yeah, truth in marketing. They would have to do a lot, of, a lot to clarify what business mm -hmm. they were in. <laughs> there was a, I think I've brought this up a few times through the podcast, but there was some athlete and they were being interviewed and the journalist asked a question about some rumor about their personal life and they said something like when i have a child i'm gonna name them anonymous source <laughs> so whenever <laughs> they're protected they're obfuscating through the anonymous source <laughs> yes guys that's a pretty good idea yeah pretty brilliant <laughs> um <laughs> they also get scapegoated all the time i don't know yeah. Future therapy in their future, potentially there. But anyway, so, Aaron, let's let's shift over to the second pillar, which seeks to disrupt and dismantle threat actors using all instruments of national power. Can you elaborate on what exactly that would entail? Sure. So what is coming out of this, if you search around for a bit, is an idea called defend forward. Um, it's kind of a buzzword, but it, what it really means is the government now has a policy of explicitly hacking hacker groups. Um, and this is a little different than the sort of free-for-all hackback that was being proposed in D.C. a few years ago. There's this idea floating around that companies, when they're attacked, should have the idea to counterattack. And that appears to have gone away. Um, instead, what you're hearing is that government agencies um, coordinated, mostly I believe through the Defense Department, are going to have the explicit instruction 
to be attacking various threat actors and be going after their infrastructure. Um, that we're not just going to wait and react. We are going to go after the attackers themselves. And that's actually really interesting. Um, there's a subsection of this also. It's, um might actually have a fair amount of impact in the U.S., which is they're trying to prevent U.S. infrastructure from being used in attacks. Um, and that becomes a sort of know-your-customer set of rules for services based in the U.S. Um, the idea is... You can't just accept Bitcoin and a, you know, studman69 at Yahoo email address to give somebody a server. You have to actually be able to trace this back to a person in the U.S. Um, I can see this making some U.S. infrastructure providers very nervous. The, I, I can see the reason why your various law enforcement organizations want it. Um, but that is part of this also. They called out very explicitly this executive order, I think, signed during the Trump administration, actually, that says you have to be able to do a certain level of know your customer if you're um, offering infrastructure as a service in the U.S. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And um, I know that this pillar, the second pillar, also mentions um, they would engage the private sector in disruption activities through scalable mechanisms. Um, so private sector partners are encouraged to organize their efforts through nonprofit organizations, but how how would that work, Aaron? <laughs> so there's a bunch of organizations um, that have the acronym of ISAC, and I fixed exactly what ISAC stands for. Everyone just calls them ISACs. They're sort of um, bodies around certain groups, like there's a financial ISAC, there's a, um, I believe an energy generation ISAC, et cetera. In information sharing and analysis center. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> the idea is they're saying, please work with these existing groups rather than sort of going off on your own and saying, well, I know these guys and these guys, so I'm going to talk to them. Um, they're also interestingly calling out that the federal government's supposed to change stuff about their daily operation to make the government faster partners. Because, you know, if the government knows something, but that thing they know is classified and the people they're talking to don't have clearances, they have a lot of trouble getting that information out. So I'll actually be really curious to see if they do manage the speed sharing of sort of sensitive or classified information with various ISACs and various um, private sector partners, because um, that could really speed responses also. Follow-up question. How tough would it be to work in an agency and be named Clarence? And how <laughs> many times a day are they asked, what's your clearance, Clarence? Yeah, the, the temptation to sort of do airplane, Roger, Roger. Victor yeah, Vector. Yeah. yeah. Over, What's the Vector over. Vector? Yeah. yeah. It would be. Are there people in bureaucracy <laughs> that actually I know the answer to this, but that have sufficient senses of humor to to do that and to spend time on it? I would have I would have said no, actually, before I started working with some folks. Maybe the cyber realm is just extra awesome. It probably is. That's why we're all in it. But uh, I think such levels of senses of humor do exist within the halls of government somewhere. Oh, certainly. Um, it's a very process heavy organization, but there's still the people are still human. Yeah, they absolutely do. This is like You heard it here first. <laughs> the people in our government. I'm just kidding. <laughs> are funny. They're yeah. funny. Well, you know, you have to admit, I have to imagine like the more process in my world breeds more humor because you have to make sense of this world that you are living in and, and tied to. Um, and it's so, there's so much absurdity in process and it's kind of fun to like lean into that a little bit is my perspective. Mm -hmm. um, office space is the perfect example of that playing out <laughs> in the real world. I just have to say, um, <laughs> but um, well, let's, let's keep moving forward here. I know we have a lot to cover here in this this strategy so so tim i'm gonna ping pong this over to you this strategy specifically calls out ransomware as a threat to national security public safety and economic prosperity can we all agree that that's the biggest threat i mean we're continually inundated with articles arguing that it is um or other elements like bec business email compromise are taking its place as the leader should this strategy be addressing maybe the less flashy or newsworthy threats like BEC? Yeah, that's a reasonable question. And, you know, folks who are longtime listeners to the podcast and uh, longtime listeners, first time callers. Well, I guess we would have to have callers in order to <laughs> use that phrase. But 
uh, will remember that this is something I've talked about probably several times in the past couple of years, which is whereas ransomware gets a lot of attention and focus and a lot of articles and hand-wringing and so forth, and, and hand-wringing probably makes it sound um, too, too dismissive. We should care about ransomware, obviously, quite a lot. But uh, if you look at the statistics, various forms of phishing, including business email compromise, are actually responsible for a lot more of the financial losses than ransomware is. Now, some of that may have to do with just how, how stuff's being counted, because a lot of ransomware attacks actually involve phishing as uh, an initial incursion vector. And so the lines get blurred a little bit there. Um, but uh, so these ideas seem like maybe they'd be in opposition. BEC creates more financial losses, but ransomware is the national security problem. So shouldn't we think that BEC or the phishing more broadly is the biggest threat from a national security perspective? But here's the thing. I actually think there's a way in which these things are not so much in opposition. And uh, a lot of that has to do with questions around the policy on paying ransoms. Uh, that's one part of it. I'll come to the second part in a second. But that's a bigger question uh, that's similar sort of to this question of you know whether we negotiate with terrorists. So there's a strong geopolitical component to ransomware. Uh, we are inter interacting, unfortunately, if we're victims, right? We're interacting with state-sponsored actors in a lot of cases, not always, but uh, it's not uncommon, especially for larger enterprises. That's who they're dealing with. So when we, and so that's that's the other part of this, right? Is the fact that it's, um, you're, you've got individual companies that are directly uh, interacting with a an entity that very well might be a directly state-sponsored entity. So that becomes a national security question in a way that ordinary crime and, and responses to it are not necessarily. So I think it actually does um, make sense to call out ransomware as a threat to national security. It's just, it's got a, a different set of dynamics to it than some of the other kinds of, of phishing attacks. Interesting. And yeah, if BEC could have like the anti-evangelist because you're not evangelizing for business email compromise, but against it. Uh, so I want to make that very clear. I feel <laughs> like Tim would be that name. Because um, I know I know you have uh, been talking about that for, for quite a while. Um, but uh, the point is we'll take in Tim and uh, just carrying on here. There's been a lot of conversation, I think, already on this podcast about the way that the government is clearly trying to make a direct impact on private business. And, you know, pillar three discusses shaping market forces to drive security and resilience by holding the stewards of our data accountable. So what does this mean for organizations working with customer data? Can we expect to see shifts in company privacy policies as a result of what we're seeing here in this strategy? Uh, yes, actually, I think, and this is some of the most interesting stuff in this uh, to me, but I think, you know, we've seen trends again that we're heading in this direction in starting uh, not on our own shores, but with uh, GDPR and the real push for, um, uh, for close governance of data and protection of the privacy of individuals online. And then getting into the United States, California led the way with the CCPA, California Consumer Protection uh, Act. And so the CCPA is in some ways very similar to GDPR. And I think it's likely that we will see um, more laws kind of similar to that, but in conjunction with you know, what the, pillar 3.3 shift liability for insecure software products and services, um, you know, shifting it to the entities that actually are introducing vulnerabilities uh, and putting some liability on vendors instead of allowing them to essentially duck out of that liability through the terms and conditions that we all read very carefully before we click on them and accept them. I, I am just 
going out on a limb there and assuming that we all do. Uh, but I know that I always do. Uh, <laughs> but I think that, um, uh, yeah, the public is not going to put up indefinitely with their privacy being compromised, their data being sold for what are currently uh, in legal markets, in legal ways. So it's perfectly fine for, uh, not fine morally, but perfectly fine legally for your data to be uh, shared and sold and resold uh, by these various data brokers and so forth. And um, just for the purpose of targeting better ads to you. I don't know. I, I like to throw chaff into that system, by the way, and get myself targeted with ads for all kinds of random things that just make me laugh when I see the ads come up. Anyhow, um, along with a lot of the other mandates in this uh, strategy, I think we will start to see uh, some legal teeth. There's that name again, coming into... Um, getting vendors to take some accountability for protection of people's data. And I think that's really valuable. Another one, another example in there um, has to do less with folks' data, but with um, making uh, IoT devices more secure. Definitely happy to see that. Um, that's pretty exciting. So, uh, so yeah, I think we're, I think that the theme here is shifting from guidance toward law. And um, so I, I am excited to see some of the changes that are going to happen there as a person who does value privacy along with um, uh, security. Ah, the internet of trouble. Yeah. Good old IoT wreaking havoc, uh, which kind of brings me to my next question here. I'm going to um, ask you, Aaron, pillar three, and maybe this is what you are speaking to, Tim. Pillar 3 talks about shifting liability for insecure software onto the vendors of the software. So what does that mean for software companies? Is this something that you can just write in, into another clause of their insurance policy? And, and maybe, Aaron, do you agree that this intersects with IoT, or was that actually a specific call out here? It was actually a whole separate call out. The IoT part and the software liability part are whole separate things, um, which is interesting on its own that they're not just saying, you designed some little throwaway gadget that is now super vulnerable. They're saying to vendors of software, this has got to change. Now, to be clear, both the part that Tim was just talking about and this one, these are kind of wish lists. Um, the Biden administration can't just do this the way they can do it with some regulations. Um, they need Congress to do that. Congress can always just say, nah. Um, and this one may be controversial. This one and the um, privacy one that Tim was talking about may be controversial enough that they won't make it. Um, cybersecurity has generally been really bipartisan, which has been neat to see. This one and the um, live, the privacy one are going to be big sells. I'll be curious to hear about it. Um, but specifically, I don't know, Aaron, I'd say that given <laughs> the deftness and uh, efficacy with which they've handled the TikTok situation, I think we can expect <laughs> good things going forward. Yeah, it's going to be a complete mess. Um, anyway, for this one in particular about like software liability. I've actually seen uh, Jen Easterly from CISA um, speak about this. She's been uh, talking about it for a while now. Um, and the analogy she's been using is that of automotive liability. That, you know, if you buy a car and it just so happens that you rub the right rear fender enough and makes the car explode, that you would expect the car manufacturer to be liable for that because that's insane. Even if the terms and conditions say don't rub the right rear fender. All exactly. <laughs> the, the, a car manufacturer cannot display that liability because that's insane. Um, and, but that's kind of what happens with software. You, you know, talk to this one little unseen field over there and suddenly the software explodes. Um, and her point is you shouldn't be able to disclaim that kind of liability. It shouldn't be able to make these completely random things happen. Um, the challenge is that is that analogy doesn't quite work for software because we don't build cars out of an, a giant amalgamation of parts, some of which are made by some random guy in his basement that he gives away because he just enjoys writing stuff. Um, you know, but that's exactly what happens in software. You know, Log4j is a volunteer effort that these guys wrote for fun. It turned into a giant thing because they didn't have the time to be a big software organization. So this could have a really huge impact. Um, they have to be really careful to not make, uh, you know, open source software a gigantic personal liability for every author of software. 
it's clear they're aware of that. They're talking about safe harbor if you're doing the right thing. They're talking about having large enough organizations that are, you know, you have to be sort of this big to be liable. But still, this is an enormous potential liability challenge. Um, and in this section, they even mention they might need, might need to set up a um, insurer of last resort for things like this because the cyber insurance market isn't real happy right now either with all the ransomware. They don't want to pay that. I'm not entirely convinced the cyber security, the cyber insurance industry, excuse me, has the in you know the actuarial tables to even write policies for this stuff. So I don't know if companies will be able to write it into an insurance policy. Um, so this one, there's just a lot of question marks around this. I feel like this particular section is a sort of a wish list, a, you know, planting a flag to say we want this to happen, scare a bunch of people into figuring out what that really means, and then see what see what shakes out. We could do whole shows around uh, cyber insurance because, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's it's pretty fascinating. But in, and I like to sometimes kind of, I don't know, get down on the in, insurance industry. But I will say that if you're, I don't envy people who are trying to figure out how you write a cyber insurance policy. I mean, if, if you compare it to, to use that car analogy again for a second, mm. you know, when when they were having to figure out when cars started to be a thing and then auto insurance started to become a thing, there were certain, even though automotive technology was uh, moving along at a decent clip, certain things that you were up against from a liability and risk perspective didn't change. Physics didn't change. You know, yeah. F equals MA didn't really evolve much. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, not at all. And so uh, in this case, you've got not you know, the physics of cars crashing into bridge abutments and, you know, how safe they ought to be for that and, and so forth, or the risk of uh, how easy it is to uh, run into a pedestrian or something like that. In this case, what the, uh, the risk comes from in large part is from humans on the other side constantly evolving their tactics and whatnot. Mm. So, you know, if you could imagine, if the laws of physics were changing in malicious ways all the time, that would make doing car insurance as well as a lot of other things a whole lot harder. But um, but you didn't. You had some bedrock laws, natural laws, that allowed you to develop a concept around safety that had a foundation that was firm. And that foundation, you could argue, in some ways doesn't exist in this world where both sides are humans trying to outfox each other. Right. And that what, mean, what that means is, you know, they're saying you should be covered if you follow these secure development practices. Those secure development practices are moving targets. So, you know, every year you're going to have to change how you develop in order to keep insuring your company. And that's on its own manageable. It becomes a business cost. But, you know, is Ubuntu going to shoulder that cost for Linux? Is Debian? Is Red Hat? How is that going to work? Nobody knows right now. And that's going to be really interestingly challenging. Very interesting. Huh, I feel like we could have an, an entire episode dedicated to this exact conversation, if not a series. <laughs> um, and I, I just have to go back. I, I want to take a note. We definitely need to write a blog that takes a look at um, Inspector Gadget, the movie from the like early 2000s and break down the risk of every single gadget that the inspector has. <laughs> what, what could happen? What could go wrong? Um, let's keep, let's keep boogieing here. We're, you know, on three of five here pillars. So let's talk a little bit about pillar four and then pivot to pivot five, pivot to pillar five. So, um, let's talk here about pillar four. So, Number, pillar number four is really talking about investment in resilient future. And this pillar mentions prioritizing cybersecurity research and development. So what sort of research do you think is most critical right now in our space? I, this is hard because I know people want to do neat stuff, um, but the federal government is fairly small compared to the private sector in terms of the amount of research that's happening. Um, so I'm not convinced that the federal government doing sort of short-term, medium-term research is actually going to be a super great use of their time. Um, 
a couple of years ago, I say like 2016, uh, DARPA sponsored a thing called the Cyber Grand Challenge, which was basically an attempt to completely automate red teaming. Um, so they said, basically, you have to build something that can completely hands off, attack this chain of computers and get to, you know, do a capture the flag, basically. Um, they all failed in 2016, but now there are companies that sell this as a product. And I feel like that's the kind of just crazy blue sky, try this stuff that I'd love to see the government doing more of because the the sort of day-to-day research, I feel like private industry's got that covered. Um, but the the crazy DARPA stuff, I'd love to see the government doing more of. Yes, indeed. That'll be fun to keep an eye on. And Aaron, we'll have to have you pop back on when we see that kind of research <laughs> percolating into to the public world here. And so, Tim, speaking of Pillar 4, uh, we've spoken about careers in cybersecurity. We ask our guests about their career paths, and you've written a blog post about the road to InfoSec and how we need more good people. Pillar 4 is addressing this issue. What do you think about their proposed scholarships and training slash apprenticeship programs? So I think the concepts that they are laying out here are really great. I fully agree with the what that they're describing. I think the how uh, is a little bit murky. So the closest, uh, by my read of the document anyway, the closest they come to answering that is is the parts where it talks about building on the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education, or NICE, uh, on cyber, uh, cyber Core, on Scholarships for Service, on the National Centers for Academic Excellence in Cybersecurity, and the cybersecurity education training and assistance program, as well as, as you mentioned, the registered uh, apprenticeships program. Um, They're going to build on the uh, National Science Foundation's workforce development. Um, So all of that is great. What I want to see more of is, okay, where are the dollars going? What's the accountability? What are the mechanisms for these things? Um, to actually make sure that this reaches the ground level and uh, that we see a pipeline of folks getting into this field um, with the right kind of training and in a way that maintains um, excitement and enthusiasm and curiosity to help people grow those careers. Um, There's another aspect of the what that I really love. And again, I'd love to know more about the how, and that is where they are supporting um, more diversity in this uh, field. So they specifically call out LGBTQI plus communities and getting folks in those communities more deeply involved in cybersecurity. That's awesome. I just want to know more about how they're going to make that happen. Because, you know, as we've seen over decades, it's very controversial. um, If you take something like affirmative action, that, that winds up um, becoming a political thing that is not necessarily easy to implement. And it's, it may be that we're going to see some of the same pushback on some of the proposals here. So it'll be interesting to see what actually happens, um, what makes it all the way into implementation and widespread practice. But I, I sure am supportive of what they're trying to do here. Excellent. Thank you, Tim. Really appreciate it. And we're going to talk briefly here about Pillar 5, We're going to self-actualize here and get to the top of the pyramid. Um, And Pillar 5 is really focused on international partnerships to pursue shared goals. So, Aaron, how do you think the U.S. will be able to hold irresponsible states accountable when they fail to uphold their commitments to stable cyberspace? (laughs) I mean, we've seen some of this happening already with, like, um, you know, joint efforts to seize um, various marketplaces, joint actions arresting various ransomware groups, stuff like that. Frankly, this boils down in a certain sense to diplomacy. You know, how would we hold a country responsible if they kept, or they're looking the other way when our ships kept getting hijacked? You know, how would we hold a country responsible if they kept poisoning our food? There's a bunch of international measures for this. Um, What I think is interesting is this is basically saying what happens in cyberspace doesn't stay in cyberspace anymore. Um, And that they're pretty explicitly calling out, we're not just going to act like this is limited to the internet anymore. This is the law and we're going to start applying the law like we would any other law breaking internationally. Very interesting. Um, also I really want to see the label. I'm really, I'm really harping on internet of trouble today, but like (laughs) when you're trying to purchase 
anything that connects to the internet. I want it to say cyber stable, like shelf stable. Um, just to know, you know, that should be a a label. Best before. Best before. Is it a date or is it, uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, I'll tell you what, let's, let's end on a final question that I'm going to toss to both of you before we play gold guidance and grievances here and call it an episode. And that's really, first of all, there's a lot to unpack and a lot of things we didn't even have a chance or time to cover today through these five pillars. But do either of you have any constructive criticism, reflections on this strategy or, or things that you really enjoyed seeing um, when you're reading through this document? And I'll start with you, Aaron. I mean, overall, I think it's a really interesting sort of grab bag. Um, there's some sort of wish listy things that probably won't happen. Some really good ideas. Um, the, what struck me overall for it was that the overall tone is very much one of we tried it your way and that didn't work. Um, and that's a new tone for the government thing to be taking. And it's it's a lot more combative to the rest of the industry, which is really interesting. Um, I, obviously, the proof's going to be in the pudding, though. You know How much this actually makes it to regulation, how much this actually makes it to legislation. Um, I think some of these debates are actually going to be really interesting to have, though. You know, How much liability should there be? So having that debate out loud, even if it doesn't change anything, having the debate out loud is something we've needed to do as an industry for a long time. Um, and I think even just having the debate will be valuable. I really want to be able to purchase at my local grocery store a math pudding in which you find the proof. And I think that would be very funny. And even if it's disturbing to find something in your food, I think it's worth it for the joke. I'm sure um, so maybe bad. you could do it, you know, you could use sort of like alphabet soup. You can have little... Oh. Little items that are shaped like um, Greek symbols and stuff. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure Aaron would automate. Nice. He would look at those letters and he would write something. I'm sure to get some to the has absolutely joked about jamming like a whole proof and then just embedding it in a pudding. I'm confident oh. that's happened with some college kid at some point. I want to see it. Yes, that's actually how the government ships out secrets these days. It's just like right, it was right in front of our nose the entire time. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, Tim, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with, um, with Aaron on this. I think, uh, and I've to maybe reinforce some of the points that I've made in some of the other answers here today as we've been talking through this, is I want to see more about the how. Um, because, and, and part of that, you know, where, the, where everything happens... <laughs> in our society is where the money gets involved. And so um, I think some of this is gonna come down to where budget is allocated and how it's going to be used for, let's say enforcement mechanisms um, and incentives and so forth. So to put out this, as Aaron put it, grab bag, great way of, uh, of putting it, of good ideas is one thing. It's a little bit of an unfunded mandate kind of concept, and we know those don't necessarily go very far. So the specificity of the how we're going to achieve these things, I think, is the next the next stage we have to get to. And I don't know, frankly, I don't really know quite how to evaluate how much impact I think this is going to have until we learn more about some of those specifics. Totally fair. Completely reasonable. We'll just have to keep our eye on that ball. Um, juggle, keep all the, I was going to just try to get convoluted with <laughs> juggling metaphors there, but I'm, I'm going to pass on that. Um, and I know we're running up to the end of our time here to record. So let's quickly go through both of your gold guidance and grievances for the week. And so just, this is just a fun alliteration we came up with um, just to share pleasant things, you know, pat fellow folks on the back. And then of course, air any grievances, which is, is very important to do for, for one's mental health. So um, that's not just for Festivus. <laughs> that's kind of what we're, what we're pointing out here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tim, why don't you start us off? What are your gold guidance and grievances for the week? Sure. So my gold is um, there was actually some FDA guidance on medical devices uh, to improve their 
cybersecurity. And these are being heralded as actually having some, some teeth to them. And, um, Boy, this has been like the dental episode of Breaking Bad. I was going to say. I've teeth a whole bunch of times. We'll send uh, you a plaque. So, oh, <laughs> uh, look at that. Um, it's 2.30. There must have been some laughing gas around here. Anyway, uh, the FDA is starting to say, look, it's not acceptable for medical devices to just be vulnerable when they're network connected because they have to be network connected in a lot of cases. And... Um, we can't just accept the level of risk that we have accepted so far. And so I think that's great. Um, and the, this uh, national cybersecurity strategy where it talks about IoT devices kind of touches on this. But here's the FDA actually doing something. And, and they are not necessarily imposing uh, sanctions and so forth yet, but it looks like that's likely to come. So Go FDA. I think that's great. Um, guidance. Do tabletop exercises on uh, scenarios. I think there's not enough emphasis on actually doing exercises. And if you look at fields like aviation, which is one that I'm a big fan of and participate in sometimes, um, the training that turns responses to emergencies into muscle memory and just instant recall where you don't have to think about it and make it up as you're going along so, so important. And uh, I don't think nearly enough companies are doing tabletop exercises on different kinds of major events that could be impactful to them. And I think, I think they need to, even though it's hard to do that, that's a big ask because everybody's busy all the time. And folks, in, especially in security teams, are firefighting uh, a lot of the time. And like, which fire would you like me to allow to explode into a raging inferno while we do your nice little tabletop exercise? And yet, I think in the long run, um, they will pay off. My grievance, um, actually, I have, I have one little grievance that's from this cybersecurity strategy we were just talking about, and that is that one of the things they call out is unencrypted DNS. And this is a complicated issue, but overall, um, SOC teams will be... Uh, much more in the dark when it comes to understanding traffic flows that they're trying to analyze in their environment if DNS is all opaque to them. So I would rather not see unencrypted DNS uh, getting attention or being put in the crosshairs uh, the way that it is in this. So I would, I would redline that particular part of it. But there you go. There's my grievance. Thank you, Tim. And over to you, Aaron. Um, like Tim, since we're talking about government, the, the gold thing I grabbed was uh, about government. In this case, about two weeks ago, um, the Copyright Office ruled that anything made solely by a generative AI can't be copyrighted, uh, which I found to be super interesting because it kind of puts a hole beneath the waterline for all those plans to replace writers and artists for commercial works. If you made something saying, you know, hey, AI, hey, mid-journey, hey, ChatGPT, write me a novel, make me a um, graphic novel the results can't be copyrighted. Um, and there is no way the creative industry is going to accept not owning the copyright for their product. Um, so I think that's good, just a fascinating, really simple decision from the copyright office saying, if a human being didn't do it, you can't copyright it. Yeah, that's a good call, Aaron. And I sure hope that doesn't change. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's um, nice. They, they may actually made an explicit call out that somebody asked them about a copyright for a graphic novel where a human being had written the script and then had, I don't even know if it was Midjourney, but something like Midjourney, make all the pictures for the graphic novel. And the copyright office's response was, yeah, your script is copyrighted, but none of those pictures are. Um, and that's going to have such an interesting impact on the industry as they're trying to figure out how to use this. Because I don't think any commercial organization is going to say, what do you mean I don't own the copyright to that? It's completely unacceptable to them. Um, so that'll be really interesting to see that shake out. I think that's actually a really good decision on the part of the Copyright Office. Um, for guidance, um, if you're not following a guy named Chris Sanders on Mastodon, it is chrissanders88 at infosec.exchange. I'd really recommend having a look at his stuff. Uh, about every week or so, he posts something called an investigation scenario. Uh, it's basically a um, an a instant response, a sort of mini canned instant response saying, you see this thing on this machine, you have access to this, you don't have access to that, what do you do? 
Um, and they're really interesting because people will talk through because it's canned. We talk through what techniques would you use, what would you try and grab, how would you solve the problem, how would you answer the question of what happened here. Um, and so it's a great way to just see what do I do in this situation? What would I do in this situation? How are, would other people solve this problem? What might I not have thought of um, for an instant response? And so, you know, Tim was mentioning tabletops. This is sort of a mastodon top, if you will, uh, with people just sort of walking through a hypothetical <laughs> scenario. Um, and I thought those are actually really useful. Big plus one on that. He's awesome. Yeah, I love those things. Um, and for grievance, speaking of social media, I'm not going to judge anybody else for this, but personally, I am so done talking about Twitter. Um, I understand why people are still there. I'm not judging anybody for still being there, but I'm it, the talk about it has begun to feel really ghoulish to me, and I want to not talk about it anymore. Ah, <laughs> uh, ghoulish. I love how something can be like a ghoul, and that is a way that we describe the world. <laughs> you're like a ghoul yes this the situation is like if a ghoul was here that is how i feel um perfect well thanks aaron appreciate your perspective here and mm -hmm. tim obviously same to you this was a great talk i wish we could have tripled our time together uh thank you both for for just taking a deep dive into that strategy doc so we it's very possible we'll have more conversations about this moving forward um and so just just stay tuned uh, because this is probably one of many on on um, all things United States federal government. So thank you, Aaron, especially for joining us this week. And we'll actually sure, be yeah. uh, we'll be back next week, I believe. And then I think we have a break coming up, so you can count on episode one fifty four. And thank you both for your time. And I hope everybody has a wonderful week. You too. And Aaron, great to have you on again. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me back. Cheers. A goodbye now. <laughs> That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter, at Domain Tools. All of the articles and IOCs mentioned today will be included in our blog post, which can be found at domaintools.com slash resources slash podcasts. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. We'll see you next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and click. <laughs>